Uh, If you have your scriptures with you, you can open them to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And if you don't, you can uh, um, read along uh, in the bulletin. We actually have it printed in there. We're going to read a passage that I think has uh, a lot to do with Christmas, or I wouldn't have picked it. Uh, But it's uh, an interesting and familiar passage, and I'll try to walk us through it and tell you uh, what I think it has to say to us today. So let's look at Deuteronomy 18, and we'll start reading in verse 9. Now hear God's word. This is Moses, by the way, and God uh, talking together. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Christmas is a great time. It's a very sentimental time, and I think that uh, is nice. I love Christmas, but the sentimentality of Christmas can get in the way of what Christmas is all about. And uh, we all know the cliches, you know, putting Christ back into Christmas and all that kind of thing. Uh, And I hope I don't use any of those today. (laughs) But the image of Christmas is usually a manger, and uh, Mary and Joseph and shepherds, and uh, maybe even three wise men, although they were not there that particular night. But uh, And this little baby in a, in a trough, a feeding trough, or some kind of contraption, who knows where he was actually laid. But this little baby, and there he is in the manger. And there's choirs, of course, they weren't really choirs, but we call them choirs of angels, and they're singing hallelujahs to the little king. And we love that image because it's so humble and so sweet. And so the, the kingly image is one that we're all familiar with at Christmas, the little king born in humble circumstances. And uh, we love that. It's very warm and fuzzy. kind of gets us feeling good about Christmas. 
But the idea of a fiery prophet who comes with the Word of God on his lips proclaiming judgment and wrath, promises to be sure and blessings perhaps, but that image is not so great. We don't see that on Christmas. And that's why you have me. <laughs> so, we've been talking about Jesus, our Redeemer. The One who came to earth from heaven to buy us out of our slavery to sin. To pay a price. To step into judgment so that judgment would fall on Him and not on us. That's the message of Christmas. And so our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we've looked at some of these over the past week, uh, but today it says, what offices does Christ execute as a Redeemer? And the answer to that question in the catechism is, He executes the office as Redeemer of prophet, priest, and king. That's how Jesus Christ is going to execute His office of Redeemer. That's how He's going to save you from sin. How He's going to save you from destruction. And so, who are the prophets? We're going to look at who they are. Why do we need them? And finally, we'll look at who and, and why we need the prophet that Moses is talking about. So who are the prophets? Well, the word prophet in Hebrew is Navi uh, or Navi. It's V or B, uh, depending on who you listen to or how you pronounce it. Navi or Navi or Naviim, the prophets, that's the plural. These were messengers or ambassadors, representatives, spokespeople who were called by God. In other words, God would select them he would himself would summon them and then he would send them out into the population of the world to speak his word for him on his behalf. And you know, we read in the text that he appeared to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai in such a terrifying manifestation that they begged Moses, don't ever let that happen again. We don't ever want to see this or hear it. Again, now I don't know, lots of us pray, I do, oh God, let me hear you, please speak to me, please talk. We really don't want that. Let me promise you, you don't want that. We think we do. Nobody likes, you know, living in silence and thinking that you're just talking to the ceiling. And it can be very frustrating. We think, boy, if he would just speak to me, if he would just, well, he has done that. And the minute he did that, People were screaming and pulling their hair out and begging. And it says Moses himself actually was trembling with such fear that he could hardly speak. And they came and said, please don't ever let this happen again. So it's not necessarily what we really want. What we really want, what we really need, is to know that God is speaking and through someone that we can understand. I can understand another person. And these prophets were people just like out of the same tribe, out of the same community, Israel. So I'm going to pick somebody just like you to come and speak to you. So these prophets were messengers. 
Let me say something else about prophets. We've been studying the book of Revelation, and we'll get back to it after the first of the year, but I told you that we think Revelation, we think prophets were all about predicting future events, but I told you that prophets in the Bible, throughout the Bible, rarely predicted future events. In fact, there's only a couple of handfuls of times when they were really predicting a future event. Most of the time, the prophets of the Bible, which is very different than the prophets of every other country around them and everywhere else in the world, they were not about predicting the future. They were about explaining what was going on at the moment or what would what the explanation was for what was about to occur. So if something happened in two months, the prophet would have already said, I told you so. And this is what would happen. They sometimes would use the future tense, but that was just for literary purposes. They rarely predicted the future. And another thing, think about it for a second. Just think about those of you that have read your Bible. The prophets rarely performed miracles. In fact, there are very few miracles in your whole Bible. If you take your Bible, and I have one right here without anything but, but just the Bible, there's no commentary at, uh, or anything like that, just, just no, no center line reference. This is about how long it is in regular type. You know, there's only five periods in the Bible, very short, very brief, where there were actual miracles. One is Moses. The second one is Elijah and Elisha. The third one is Daniel. The fourth one is Jesus Himself. And the fifth one are the apostles that followed after Him, confirming His kingship and His conquest of hell and death and the grave. That's all. And each one of those periods were relatively brief. Miracles were rare. And prophets often did not perform miracles. They, but what they did do always, always, 100% of the time, they did proclaim God's Word. This Bible is probably, I tried to figure it out, I looked at some research that was done, and then I just got frustrated. And so I got my Bible and I just started counting myself. You know there are 17 books that are attributed to the prophets. 17, five major, 12 minor prophets. The book is attributed to these prophets. That's 17 out of 39. But if you go and you add up all the other prophetic literature that's embedded in each one of the books, there's probably 30 to 40% of your Old Testament that is prophetic literature. It is coming from the mouth of these very men and women that God had called and summoned. They were always proclaiming blessings, promises, encouragement, or sometimes ruin and judgment and wrath. There were female prophetesses. Miriam, you know, Moses' sister. Deborah, who was a judge during the time of the judges. She was a prophet, prophetess. And Anna, this woman who appears in the temple when Jesus was just a baby and sings and gets excited about the Messiah. And there were others. Then there are some unexpected prophets. Maybe you haven't thought about these. Abraham in Genesis 20 is called a prophet. Balaam was a pagan 
he is also a prophet. David is called a prophet in Acts chapter 2. Peter in his first sermon says, David was a prophet and knowing that somebody from his lineage would sit on the throne said to him, I will not leave your soul in hell, neither will I allow corruption to come upon my anointed one, my Christ. Pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, of course. So David was a prophet. Then, of course, Aaron, the brother of Moses, served as a prophet. This is what God said to Moses. I've made you, speaking to Moses, I've made you like God. To Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet so what God was telling Moses is you're going to go into the presence of the most powerful man on earth and you're going to be God to him in other words what I what you say is my word to him I'm God and I'm going to speak to him this most powerful man through you and Aaron will be your prophet so Moses Spoke very little. He was not good with words, but his brother was great with words. They were also ambassadors and advisors and counselors to the courts of the kings of Israel and, interestingly enough, to the courts of foreign kings. You remember Nathan. Nathan comes into the court after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up. Nathan comes in and tells David a parable that gets him all fired up and David said, the man that did this should die. And Nathan in front of everybody, think of it, in front of everybody he calls him out and says, you're the man. You're the man that should die. And then of course there's Elijah who went and got in up in Ahab and Jezebel's business and almost cost him his life. And then Elisha, his follower. Isaiah served in the courts of the king. Jeremiah, we could go on and on. Jonah was sent a prophet to a whole other race of people to preach repentance in the kingdom of God. And then finally, Jesus and John the Baptist were also considered prophets. So that's who they were. And of course, there's a lot more I could say about it, but we don't have time. Why do you need them? Look at Look at those first few verses, 9 through 14. When you enter the land, listen, be very careful not to imitate the detestable practices. That word is abominations. The abominable practices of the nations there. And then he gives them an example. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. And then he goes on and says, No fortune-telling, sorcery, omens, witchcraft, spells, mediums, psychics, calling forth spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things, and he uses the word again, abominations. These are abominations. And because these nations have done, just so, just so you know, because the nations have done this, I'm throwing them out of the land, and I'm going to give you the land. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't say, because you're such great people, You're such wonderful people. I'm going to throw these other bad people out and bring you good people in. No, he says, I'm going to throw the bad people out and I'm going to bring you bad people in here and don't be bad like them. That's what he's saying. It's remarkable. 
And he tells them, not because you're better than them, but because they're bad. Don't be bad like them. You see, folks, why do you need the prophets? Why do we need our Bible? Why do you need to come to church? Why do you need a pastor? Why do we need to hear almost daily? I don't know about you, but I read my Bible every day, or at least try to, and I hope you do as well. At least five minutes, a couple minutes, just hear from God. You can do it longer, good, but a little bit. Why do we need that? And I'll tell you why. It's very simple. He says it here. There is, was, is, and always will be intense pressure on you, on me, to accommodate the world around us, right? There's incredible pressure. And now we have these things with us all the time. It's ubiquitous. Everybody has one. And if you don't, you've got to get one. Because you're not a human being if you don't have this. And you're less of a human being if you don't have a 10 or 11 or whatever the next number is. It's unbelievable what goes on in our minds and in our hearts. The pressure that is put on for us to accommodate the culture around us. And look at what he says. There, the, the pressure, what, what, is it, what kind of shape does it take? It can take the shape of religion. In other words, he had to tell them, don't take your children and burn them in the fire of a sacrifice. Don't give your children to uh, the, the, gods of, the gods of the ancient Near East, Chemosh, Molech, and these other gods. Don't do that, because that was the ultimate sign of devotion. You took one of your children and you killed them. Now, we, we in the West and in modern days, we think, oh, guys, who would do that? Who would do that? Who would murder their own child? I mean, really, who would do that? I don't know who would do that. These people did for religious reasons, for self-serving reasons. And it was the ultimate sign of devotion. He says, don't do it. Then there was societal, political, and military reason. In other words, the people, the pressure on us, them and us, the pressure on us to know the will of God. You know that is the number one question that pastors get out. What is God's will for me? What is God's will for me? The pressure is enormous. Where do we live? What job should... Well, I already know where you should live, and that's El Paso. What, what, job should, <laughs> what job should I take? Who should I marry? Should I get married? Should I get married again? And again? And again? Whatever. We're always wanting to know what is God's will for us. But in the ancient Near East and today, these nations where everybody believed in God, by there was no atheist back in those days. Everybody believed in God. And so if they decided they were going to go to war, how do you know? How do we know? Even Gideon said, how do I know? Could you do something with this fleece of sheep here? I got to know. I can't go out there. So God does all these things to show him. And he gets an army of 30,000 and he goes. And God says, too many. 
You want to know what God's will is. Sometimes you don't want to know, right? His will's 300. Heavenly days. There was military. How do we know? Should we go to war? Political alliance. Should I be friends with this country or this country? You know, they were living in a world that countries were around them and they had to make political. Should we do that? What about treaties? Weather. What The weather's not out. What's going on with the weather? We're in a drought. What's going on? Where would they find? How do we know what's going on? And that's what the prophets would The prophets would stroll in and would tell them what's going on. And would explain it to them. Then there were the personal things, the mundane things, like I mentioned a moment ago. Who do I marry? Uh, what, what career should I have? Well, what about this sickness? Why am I feeling sick? Why am I not well? Why are my kids going off the rails? What's going on over here? What's going on over there? What is God's will? So we had all these questions, and the prophets would often answer those questions, large and small, to great people and to the little people, to everyone. And then there's the abomination. Why is it an abomination? What is, what is it about all this? What's wrong with consulting uh, a, a person, uh, a fortune teller? What's wrong with it? What possibly could be wrong with looking at your horoscope? Is it really that bad? Why, are we, what is, why is God against divination or, or bringing somebody back from the dead so you can ask them some questions? What is up with all that? Why is He restricting us? And there's an answer to that. Why would he do that? And I'll tell you why. To do those things implies that you are not, that you do not need to live by faith. And that by doing those things, that you can somehow control the outcome. You all, uh, uh, maybe you've, I don't know if, if any of you have read the Iliad and the Odyssey, and if you haven't, you've probably seen a movie about the Battle of Troy, the beautiful Helen that launched a thousand ships, the face that launched a thousand ships. And which king was it? Agamemnon. In order to calm down the, the gods of the ocean, the sea, the weather was so bad and they couldn't launch all their ships to go to Troy and invade. And so he has to sacrifice his daughter. And they do it. Why is it an abomination? It's because we presume a person that does this, a nation that does this, a group of people that does this and makes it part of the fabric of their lives think that by doing these things, listen carefully to me because it's the heart of Christianity, that by doing these things, we can control God. That we can step into the place of God and that we can move Him. Think of our original parents, Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be like God? The answer is no. I hope all of you want to be more like God. Yes, without being Him, but be more like Him in His character. Right? Isn't that what you aspire to as a Christian? Be like our Lord. To follow our Lord. To reflect Him. 
But what was the question in the garden? It was this one. Very simple. It was this question. How you become like me? How do you become like me? Do you become like me by stepping into my place? By trying to control me? By doing what is forbidden? By committing sin? When I tell you no, it's no. When I tell you you don't need to know about evil, all you need to know about is good, so don't eat the fruit of good and evil. Just know me, follow me, walk with me in the garden, no good. You don't need to know evil. But humankind to this day, and what Moses was dealing with there on the mountain of Sinai, were people that were so uh, programmed, if you will, to try to control God and control their circumstances, that what they did, remember the story, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to get God's Word a prophet, and bring that word back to them so that they could live by that word. And what did they do in the meanwhile while he's up there with God for 40 days? They make what? Golden calves. I mean, for goodness sakes, they had just witnessed God's prophet destroy all the gods of Egypt, which were all made out of gold or some other precious material, and were all... Defeated by God, our God. The God we talked about last week, the Redeemer who came to redeem them. He destroyed them all. And they go out in the desert and what do they do? Make more. (laughs) John Calvin said our hearts are factories producing what? Idols. Constantly. We just, it almost never stops. Falsely speaking in God's name. Trying to control everything around. So how do you live? Here's the strategies that we have adopted as people. Even Israel did it. And the church is guilty of it. Listen, here are some of the ways we've, the strategies we've tried to use in order to control, listen, our circumstances. Here we go. Just a few. One is, hey, Let's isolate ourselves. Let's all get together in a, in a group and let's hunker down and get out of the world. Let's go hide. Let's go hide here, hide there, hide behind the way we dress, hide behind the food we eat, hide, this, hide there, hide there, isolate, hunker, bunker, not be part of the world, not be in the world. Look, we got to stay away from the world. Don't touch the world. Don't get around the world. Don't listen to music. Don't go to movies. Don't touch anything. Don't listen to me. Don't do any. Don't, 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 don't. And the list grows depending on which group you get into, Right? If I untucked my shirt right now, I would leave this group and move into a whole other group. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you get the picture. I mean, we, we are so tribal. And we think that by isolating, we can control things. The other way, hey, the church has a rich hip history of being oppositional. You know, you can see it today. People with their cardboard signs and their picketing. And they're Christians. I mean, that's okay. Go pick it. But we think we've got to oppose everything around. We've got to speak bad about everything. Have you ever seen a Presbyterian dance? I'm going to show you. Here's how Presbyterian dances. 
I've done that before. And you know that the the Baptists do it too. And the Catholics, everybody. Christians are known for scolding. We just scold. and That kind of thing. Alright? So we've been isolationists. We've also gone and said, we're going to just oppose everything and be against everything. And then there's groups that say, let's transform the culture. Let's make America a Christian nation. And let's get all the right pieces in place and we can be a theocracy before God. We can be the chosen people. Or some other nation. It's been other nations. I'm just talking about my own country. Let's take over. Let's transform. Or, when the church has done this, it's actually been successful, and, but you don't see it all the time. But I'm hoping... I'm hoping that Christ the King will be this. It's my prayer for you and me that we will be an an alternate culture that's living inside that other culture. No matter what time it is. No matter what year it is. No matter what age it is. No matter how good or bad or what political systems are going on around us, whether it's Republican democracy, Republican representative government democracy, whether it's Roman Empire, whether it's communism, whether it's crazy dictatorship somewhere, whatever it is, whatever the culture, whether the culture is sold over into some sort of sin and awful stuff, or whether the culture is all very you know, well put together and everybody's uh, being moral and good, no matter what it is, no matter where it is, no matter what time in history it is, we... The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like a seed that is planted and it just grows slowly wherever it is. And soon, it will become great. Great. An alternate culture within this broader culture like leaven. Does that sound familiar? Like leaven. Like salt, little salt goes a long way. Uh, Like light, you know, you can go in the darkest place and you can just strike a match and what happens? Even with a little match, the darkness does what? It rolls back, cannot stand in the face of the tiniest bit of light. God's people have always, from Moses' time until now, we have all been faced with this intense pressure to accommodate the world. And we've come up with our own strategies. We've run off and hide, or we've become oppositional, we're going to become activists for Jesus, or any number of things. But when the church has been successful, historically, folks, the church has been successful when it takes on a flavor that is so rich and so wonderful of loving their neighbors, of being kind and generous and open and lavish in grace and kindness. When we do that, when we use our weakness rather than looking to strength, when we depend on our Lord rather than divination, and necromancy, and omens, and looking for signs, and putting our children into the hands of another God. When we do that, we become strong. 
And we can influence the world around. The reason that the reason that the church, at least in America today, is just another political activist group is because we have gotten in bed with them. Rather than being salt and light. And when I say them, I mean all of them. Them gods out there. And the prophet... Our prophet, the prophet Moses is talking about is saying, don't be like them. Follow me. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? How does he do it? The shorter catechism says, by revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God. For what? Not who you marry? Not what career you take? Not what city you live in? but for your salvation. What the will of God is for your salvation. You see, listen, the will of God, folks, I think think we grow up thinking the will of God is a bullseye. Have any of you thought of the will of God like that? It's a bullseye, right? And, And the better you are, and the more, you know, the more you focus on the Lord, maybe I can hit that center mark. And and that everything outside that center mark is somehow less the will of God for you. So we get so concerned about finding the will of God instead of finding the prophet. The one who can speak to you about your salvation. And then all Jesus said, look folks, this is not rocket science. All He said was, follow me. Now let me ask you a question. If you are following Jesus, how much of what you do will be the will of God? Somebody say 100%. Okay. Got it? You don't ever have to know the will of God for any specific thing if you follow Him because where will you end up? Where you're supposed to be. Wow, but this, this thing I did really turned out bad. Well... What's wrong with that? You know, Jesus followed the will of God perfectly. In fact, in the Gospel of John, He says over and over again, I always do My Father's will. I always do My Father's will. I always do My Father's will. And guess where it ended Him? On a cross. And I'm sorry, that's Christianity. If you don't like that, don't become a Christian for goodness sakes. Become some other religion. Christianity is about following a crucified Savior. But the great thing is this. Listen. What is so unique about Moses? What's so unique about Moses? Of all the prophets, this is what was so unique about him. Listen. Moses, at this occasion, on Mount Sinai, when he came down and he saw the golden calves and the people had brought the wrath of God down on themselves, in other words, they were about to be destroyed, Moses did this. He went to God and he said this. Listen. Please. Please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of of your steadfast love. He appealed to God Himself according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
And so centuries later, another prophet came and said these words just so that you and I would know that we have a prophet. Listen to what he said. You have not come to a physical mountain, a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. Remember, we just read about Mount Sinai. They heard an awesome trumpet blast, a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. This prophet says, you have not come to that mountain, Mount Sinai. Listen to what he says you have come to. No, no, he says. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Listen to the description. The heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God Himself, judge over all things. You've come to the spirits of the righteous ones made perfect who are in heaven and have been made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the One who mediates the new covenant between God and His people and to the sprinkling of blood which speaks, listen, of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse the One who is speaking. Jesus Christ is the prophet who comes at the end of time and for the sake of His people who are idle factories, He Himself, He interposes Himself. He says to God, please, I'll take their judgment. Please forgive them. Moses lived. But Jesus didn't. He died. But His blood spoke like Abel's blood. His blood cried out. And God raised Him from the dead and promised us that this blood, this sprinkling, speaks forgiveness. And that we, the people of God, have come to Mount Zion, a risen King, a risen prophet, a risen Christ who Himself takes our sin. I hope you'll trust Him. Will you? Will you trust Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Son, our Savior, for the beauty of His holiness, for His goodness. Christianity is not easy. Jesus Christ Himself, our prophet, said, Take up your cross and follow me. 
I am the will of God. I will take you there all the way. You don't have to consult with the dead. You can speak to the living. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, hear our prayers. Listen to our cries for mercy. Forgive us. And during this Christmas, help us to follow our true prophet, our priest, our king, our great redeemer. In his name we pray, amen.